Thanks. Morning, everyone. Morning, Colin. It's good to be together. Um, I came in this morning feeling a little bit meh, you know, um, just being honest. But just in the worship, there was just a sense of, I felt like the Spirit was just encouraging. And um, I just felt that sense, you know, not, it's not just a feeling, is it? But when the Spirit's with us, just the way that He draws us into Jesus and a heart to grow for Him. And I believe that God wants to do more of that right now as we come to the Word. Because what the Spirit does is he points us to Jesus and he helps us to, he helps to bring revelation that we can see who Jesus is. He helps to win our hearts for Jesus. And so I'm just going to pray and we're going to get to work. Father, we thank you that you gave your son, Christ Jesus, to us and for us. And that that was so costly to you. And we will never understand the full depth of what it costs you to give your precious begotten son, but we want to say thank you right now. We, we want to say thank you that we get to worship in spirit and truth, declaring these great truths of who you are and what you have done, Christ Jesus our Lord. And we say we magnify you this morning. We declare that you are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. We, we declare that in Swindon right now, in our hearts, in our lives. We declare that you are the Christ. And so we magnify your name. We pray that you would, as you promise you will do and you do, that you would pour out your spirit upon us right now, that you would bring Holy Spirit understanding and open eyes and hearts and ears to your word, that we would be those who encounter you right now through your living word. And so we bless this time in your precious name. Amen. Amen. So we're um, carrying on in our series, Cries of Calvary. Just to say, because of us, another snow Sunday, and um, we're missing out on one um, of the weeks here, but you can catch up online. So this morning in the East, Al is preaching on one of the cries of Calvary is shame. If you'd like to, um, you're more than welcome, can I encourage you to listen to that when it goes up online, because we're not going to hear it here in the West um, because of snow. I'm getting sick of this snow. Right. We are this morning going to see that Calvary cries surrender. That's the, that's the cry we're going to see this morning. Calvary cries surrender. But far be it from a weak surrender. Far be it from a surrender of helplessness to circumstance. Actually, this is a surrender of obedience. This is a surrender of the will. And so that's what we're going to see this morning. And I trust that it will build our faith and our, and our love and our confidence in Jesus as we just take this moment to dwell on the cross again. As we said at the beginning of this short series, what a great way to spend these weeks looking at the cross of Christ. As we walk up to Easter and Good Friday this coming week, that we just take the time to just dwell, to sit at the foot of the cross and hear what it shouts to us. I don't know if you have ever watched a film or read a story where the ending is both inevitable and unexpected. It's an unexpected ending, but you know somehow that that had to be the ending of the story. And that kind of film where you're left thinking, I didn't see that coming. I didn't see that ending. But in the, in the story, you know that it couldn't have ended any other way. I don't know if you... Um, know that kind of film or that moment, and they often brilliant films. I, am, I love films, I get so engrossed, but the point of the film often goes past me, and so then Emma, for the next few hours, will explain the meaning of the film to me. 
And so when I watch a film, I, I, I always say I didn't see that coming. Um, the Titanic, right. <laughs> and I don't know if you've read stories in which the joyous ending comes not by avoiding catastrophe, but instead by going, precisely going through the disaster. It's, it's counterintuitive, isn't it? So often we try to avoid catastrophe. Not by somebody coming from the outside to rescue somebody, to bring freedom to somebody from impending doom, but the hero of the story coming and precisely dying as the means to escape. I, those kind of stories are powerful stories, aren't they? Just in, in culture. They're amazing narratives that, that get us hooked. And Tolkien wrote about this. He wrote The Lord of the Rings, you know. And he wrote on this, he was writing an essay on fairy stories, and in this he tells about the power of storytelling. And the essence of a powerful, powerful myth, he argues, is the kind of twist, though a sudden and unexpected turn takes place, a miraculous burst of grace which cannot be counted on to occur. Darkness gives way to light, sadness to joy, death to life. And since Tolkien can't find a word to kind of express this moment in storytelling, he makes up his own word, a eucatastrophe. So he uses the word a eucatastrophe to explain that kind of thing, that unexpected moment, that unexpected twist, that inevitable ending that you didn't see coming. And by that word a eucatastrophe, he, he simply means it's a good kind of catastrophe. The power of the perfect myth for Tolkien is that it primes you for the conclusion from the earliest moments of the story. As you follow the story through, it leaves you longing for the inevitable resolution that is, in, that is going to occur. Such that when the events take you into the darkest despair, you know you're bound to re-emerge into the light of day. You have to. That's the way these stories work. And if you take Lord of the Rings, I don't know if you've seen... Um, I was going to play it, but it's too long. There's this great short um, animation on YouTube where, where um, Frodo and Samwise um, have the ring and they know they've got to get it to Mount Doom and then basically jumps from the start of the story right to the end of the story with nothing in between. And so the owls come and they sit on the back of the owls and they fly all the way to Mount Doom. They chuck the ring in. They go fly back home on the back of the owls and as they're flying home, they say, well, that was, that was easy. What should we do this afternoon? Or something like that. And it's this brilliant story that basically says, well, this is what happens except it misses out the engrossing, captivating, inevitable dangers and the moments of darkest despair that we know that Frodo and Samwise and the Fellowship go on in this story. And so Tolkien is the master of telling this kind of story that says, this story has to have these danger moments, these moments of despair. Yet somehow, even in the midst of the darkest despair, you know there's a good moment that's going to come. You know they're going to come from darkness out into light. And he writes this, the gospel contains a story of a larger kind, which embraces all the essence of fairy stories. And by gospel, he means the, the good news, the good news about Jesus, the message of the Bible, the thing that Christians are excited about. They contain many marvels, sorry, peculiarly, peculiarly. That word, artistic, beautiful, and moving, mythical in their perfect, self-contained significance, 
And among the marvels is the greatest and most complete conceivable eucatastrophe. But this story has entered history and primed the world. The desires and aspiration of sub-creation has been raised to the fulfillment of creation. Listen to this. The birth of Christ is the eucatastrophe of man's history. The birth of Christ is the eucatastrophe of man's history. It's the good, it's the good, what's he call it? Sorry, the good catastrophe. The resurrection is the eucatastrophe of the story of the incarnation. The very reason that Jesus was born is so that he might die. The very reason that God came and dwelt amongst us is so that he could give his life as an offering for us on a cross, even to death in our place. And Tolkien is saying this is a good catastrophe. The story begins and ends in joy. It, it has preeminently the inner consistency of reality. There is no tale ever told that men would rather find was true, and none which so many skeptical men have accepted as true on its own merits. For the art of it has the supremely convincing tone of primary art, that is, of creation. And for Tolkien, he's saying that Jesus' death and resurrection is the greatest story that has ever been told in all of history. Precisely because it is a true myth. Because it's very real. Myths and fables and stories are pointing to something that's true. They're trying to say there's tensions in creation. There's tensions in this story and history that we exist in. And they're finding ways, the authors are finding ways of explaining and helping us understand why is life, why does life work the way it does. And Tolkien is saying that this story, the good news about Jesus, is God's answer that there is a good catastrophe that has to take place for the redemption of the world. Because creation is broken and in need of a good catastrophe. This story, he says, has the strange feeling of being both utterly unexpected and yet utterly inevitable. Almost as though it had been woven into God's plan from the beginning of history. The Apostle Paul, in 1 Corinthians 15, he wrote it like this, of this story. He said, for what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. This is the eucatastrophe of the gospel. Let's jump to Mark. This is where we're going to be based this morning. Mark chapter 15 verse 21 to 39. If you want to turn there. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. And then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. Oftentimes we think that when we read that in the Gospels of Jesus being offered wine mixed with myrrh, we think that somebody's got compassion on Jesus. Actually, it's the other way around. It's part of the mocking of Jesus. In a moment, we'll see that Jesus cries out, Eloi, Eloi, 
And the crowd, the, on, the onlessness, think he's crying out to Eli, Elijah. They think he's saying, Eli, Eli. And he's crying out to Elijah to come and save him. And so they're giving him this wine mixed with myrrh to numb his senses so that he will survive longer so that they can see if Elijah is, in fact, going to come and rescue him. But Jesus did not take it. And they crucified him. That is that the Romans crucified Jesus. They divided up his clothes. They cast lots to see what each would get. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, King of the Jews. And that was a sign that Pilate had put above Jesus' head. This is the crime for which Jesus is being crucified, is that he is claiming that he is king of the Jews and setting up a kingdom against Caesar. And that infuriated the Jews, but it also gave Caesar a valid reason as to, sorry, it gave Pilate a valid reason as to why Jesus was being crucified. Just, by the way, it's interesting that around the time of Jesus' death would have been the time of day when often um, sacrifices in the temple, the daily sacrifice would have been taking place in the temple. They crucified two rebels with Jesus, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him. And remember, it's the time of the, the Passover feast, so Jerusalem would have been heaving with people. And as people were walking past Jesus, they were hurling insults at him, completely unaware of who he is and what was taking place. Shaking their heads, they're saying, so you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. And you remember Nick a couple of weeks ago said Jesus had an option. He had a real valid option before him. He could absolutely have come down from the cross and saved himself. He could have caused, called down 10,000 upon 10,000 angels to come and destroy Rome and his enemies. And yet he didn't. He chose instead to embrace the cross in order that he could save us. He could not save both himself and us. And so he gave up his life in order that he might save us. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves He saved others, they said, but he can't say himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who crucified him, those who crucified with him, also heaped insults upon him. Just by the way, Mark's gospel, the the question that Mark has on his mind as he is writing his gospel is this, and it starts right at the beginning of Mark in chapter 1, verse 1, and he says this, the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, as it is written in the prophets. Mark's question in this gospel, the thing that he wants to make resoundingly clear, is that Jesus is the prophesied King of the Jews. He is the King of Israel. He is the Messiah, the one who will come and rescue God's people. That is Mark's concern. And right in the middle of Mark's gospel, you get that amazing moment when Jesus gathers his disciples around him and he says to his disciples, who do you say that I am? So up to that point, before in the early part of Mark, he's had people saying, well, he's this, he's that. Jesus performed signs and wonders and miracles and all kinds of things. And and the question is, who is Jesus? And many people have opinions. But right in the heart of 
Mark's gospel, he says to his disciples, who do you say that I am? And that is a crucial question for every man and woman and child to answer, regardless of whether you are a follower of Jesus or not. And today, many people have all kinds of opinions about who Jesus is. For all sorts of reasons. And I want to encourage you, if you do not know Jesus this morning, if you do not have a a relationship with him, if you do not know him as Lord and Savior, that that single question, who do you say that Jesus is, is the most important question you could spend your life investigating. And God is a God who brings revelation. And if you go on a journey, on a quest like Frodo and Sam and say, I've got a mission, I want to find out who is Jesus, and you have an open heart to God, and you say, God, would you bring revelation to me of who Jesus is? He will. And he will show you who his son is. I'm completely off track. This is not good for time either. If you've got a a fancy oven that you can delay, go ahead. Um, I'm joking. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. It's not, it wasn't merely a, um, what's it called? Uh, when When the moon goes in front of the sun. Solar eclipse, thank you. It wasn't merely a solar eclipse. This was a moment of lament in heaven. This was a moment of the wrath of anger being displayed for all to see. This was a a miraculous sign, if you like, of, of the Father's anger, of the Father's sorrow, that darkness came over the land. And at three in the afternoon, hear these words, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's hanging on the cross. And he cries out. And in a moment, we're just going to dig into that phrase of Jesus and ask, what was, what was going on there? What happened? That's where we're going to focus ourselves this morning. When some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran and filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down. And we're told in the other gospel accounts that Jesus refused to drink from that sponge. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. And in fact, the other gospel accounts of of this moment in Jesus' um, crucifixion tell us that his cry, the cry, we're not left questioning, I wonder what he cried. It wasn't merely a gut-wrenching, ah! He declared, it is finished. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. What an amazing piece of scripture. It's an utterly astounding piece of scripture. The curtain of the temple was torn. God had up until this point been separated by a curtain from his people. In the temple you had the holy of holies where God dwelt. Behind a curtain. 
separated. Only the priest could go enter into the Holy of Holies. After loads of purification and washing and ritual, could he enter into the Holy of Holies? But, but we people, men, even God's own nation were separated from this curtain. They could come and offer sacrifices day after day in the temple courts. They could come into the house of God, if you like, but they could not enter into God's presence. But at the moment when Jesus died, the curtain, the very, the very object that separated God from man was torn top to bottom in two. And at that moment, suddenly, I'd lo- I mean, I would love to be there and have seen the faces of the people in the, in the temple. What on earth? What does this mean? What do we do now? Quick, somebody get a needle and thread. Who knows what they were thinking, but this was not in their framework of understanding. We go to the temple to encounter God by giving a sacrifice through a priest who mediates on our behalf that we can be right with God. And suddenly that's done away with. Suddenly there is no curtain that is separating man from God because Christ Jesus is the curtain. Because we go through Christ into death, we die with Jesus in his death. And when you're in Christ, you've gone through death itself, which is why when we celebrate baptism next week, when people are baptized, they're saying, I identify myself with Jesus in in his death. And I pass through the waters of judgment. Think of Noah, the waters of judgment coming over the, the, the whole world at that point and bringing a flood and destroying the known world apart from God's grace on Noah, closing Noah and his family into the ark. Or you think of the Israelites as they passed through the Red Sea and God separated the waters and allowed them to walk on dry land through the sea, through the judgment of God. And they made it safely across to the other side. And then the Egyptian armies come along charging after them and God closes the sea in on them as judgment on Egypt. And in Jesus Christ, we're told that we are are crucified with him in his death. When we place our faith and trust in him, we are hidden in Christ. Just like Noah was shut into the ark with his family and passed through the waters of judgment, so too our life is hidden in Christ. And we pass through death into life eternal in Christ. There is nothing you can do on your own that will merit God's favor in this way. There is no other religion, no other means to be, to be acceptable for God because of this problem of sin that we have. But Christ's death was an atoning death for our sin, once and for all. And the writer to the Hebrews, he said it like this. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away the sins. He's talking about the temple sacrifice. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire. But a body you prepared for me with burnt offerings and sin offerings, you were not pleased. Then he said, here I am. It is written about me in the scroll, I have come to do your will, God. And what was the will of his father? First he said, Suffering, sacrifices and offerings and sin offerings you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them, though they were offered in accordance with the law. And then he said, here I am, I have come to do your will. He sets aside the first to establish the second. And by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Stop there. Hebrews 10, read it, it's great. Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. Up until this point, 
in this story. We're in the darkest moment of despair in this story. And we've seen the suffering of Jesus. We've seen the shame of Jesus. The crown of thorns. The flogging. The robe that's placed on him in mockery. The sign above his head. People jeering at him. His own people rejecting him. And we see Jesus a sacrifice on the cross. A sacrifice given by the Father. Not sparing his own son, but giving him up for us all. Because he loved you and I. And we hear this cry from Calvary, from the depths of Jesus. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And these words are referring, actually, they're not just words that in that moment that Jesus happens to be thinking. These are words that come directly from the 22nd Psalm. And Jesus, in this moment, he's speaking out the very first verse of this Psalm. Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. And it's interesting, isn't it, just for a moment that Matthew and Mark, they could have just written that in the common language that they were writing their Gospels in, in Greek. Instead, they choose to use those words. For some reason, they choose to keep those Aramaic words. Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. For some reason, Scripture deems it necessary that we hear the very cry of Jesus. And at Jesus' lowest moment, in his moment of darkest despair, see, we have the, we have the, we have the privilege of standing on this side of the story, this side of the cross. We know the story. We know how it ends. We know, in fact, that we can say that the cross of Christ is, in fact, a you catastrophe. We know that it's a good catastrophe because we're on this side of it. But in that moment, Jesus is there on the cross for all to see, carrying the shame and sin of the world. Not just on our behalf, but becoming a sin offering for us. He became sin. And he says that phrase, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Let me just say a couple of things of what being forsaken here cannot mean. Jesus does not mean this. That the eternal communion between the Father, Son, and Spirit was broken. God cannot and could not cease to be a triune God. God was and is and is to come. He always has been and is and always will be Father, Son, and Spirit. So in that moment upon the cross, God, the Father forsaking His Son was not that it ceased to be a triune God. Neither was it that the Father ceased to love the Son. I just want to say that. I think it's really important that we don't think that, that the Father failed to love the Son in that moment. As though, he's, as though He takes pleasure in punishing His Son for our sin. He loved His Son. He loved His Son. And I imagine that the Father, especially at this moment, loved His Son. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only begotten son. The most precious thing he had, he gave to us. That we would put nails through his hands and feet. A crown of thorns on his head. That we would mock him and spit at him with the passers-by and jeer at him.
The Son was the great offering that the Father gave us. Neither could forsaken mean that the, that the Holy Spirit had ceased to minister to the Son. He had come down on Jesus' baptism. You remember at the Jordan, Jesus was baptized. He came up and then the Spirit descended like a dove upon Jesus. And we heard the audible voice. Well, we didn't, but those who were there heard the audible voice of, Jesus, of the Father saying, This is my Son in whom I love and I am well pleased. In John. John's Gospel. The Holy Spirit would be there to the last as the eternal Spirit through whom the Son offered Himself to God. You can read about that in Hebrews chapter 9. The Holy Spirit did not cease to minister. Forsakenness also cannot mean this, that the words are a cry of despair because despair is in actual fact a sin. To get to a point of despair is actually a point of hopelessness. And as those who are in Christ Jesus, we know that we have a hope that goes through every circumstance, every storm, every struggle. It's why we love to gather week after week because we need to remind ourselves of this. We, excuse me. We have a hope. We have a saviour. We have one who's gone through death and resurre- been resurrected and come out the other side. And he is a living, risen, resurrected Messiah. He is not dead as some suppose. He is not sleeping. He is alive. And so we never need to get to a place of despair in life. Let me just put something around that. That does not mean we do not face circumstances where we say, God, where are you? We need to be real. We go through circumstances, moments in life, some foreseen, some unforeseen, tragedy, Heartbreak, painful moments in life where we will cry out, my God, my God, where are you? But do you know the amazing hope that we have is knowing that Jesus has already been there. He's already done it. We this morning are not just worshipping a God who is far off, indifferent, uncaring, doesn't understand the circumstances you are going through. We have a God who is imminent. We have a God who knows, who understands. We have a God who suffered like us, one who has compassion and can walk with us in our suffering. Not just saying to us, go on, you can get through this, but saying, I understand what it's like to walk as a man who is suffering in every way that you have suffered. Jesus understands. He's a great high priest. He is both the sacrifice and the priest. And our high priest, the one that we come to, who is our way to the Father, the mediator for us, not some guy in a temple, but Jesus, the living way, he understands and he mediates for us. Even right now this morning, we're told in Scripture that he is praying on your behalf. Isn't that amazing? To know that the Son, the eternal begotten Son, loves you so much that he right now is praying for you to the Father. It was not merely a cry of despair. Even in the darkness, my God, my God. So often when things are said in twos in scriptures, it actually points to a a true truth, if that makes sense. It's not just sort of true, it's utterly true. Jesus is not saying, God, where have you gone? He's saying, my God, my God, I totally, fully believe in you. I totally, fully trust in you. That He was resolute in that. And though there was no sign of him, and though the pain was obscuring promises for Jesus in his mind, he, he, he was suffering in this moment. Make no mistake, he was suffering. 
Somewhere in the depths of Jesus' soul remained the promises and the prophetic promises of God over Israel and his purpose. That in that moment of pain and separation and suffering and forsakenness, he would cry out from the psalm, and we will read this in just a moment, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He remained assured that his father was holding him. What was true of Abraham was truer still of Jesus Christ. Against all hope, he believed. Jesus knew his father's faithfulness. This was not a weak death. This was not Jesus being forsaken and just a weak death and some people die well and strong and stiff upper lip and all of that. Others die crying, sobbing, fearful. This wasn't Jesus as a weak death. We read, don't we, about Christian martyrs and, and, and how resolute they were. And you read about different groups of people throughout the ages, even from the very early times of the church. And they would go to the lions singing, rejoicing. Accounts of this in history from people who weren't the people of God saying, I don't get it, but when they go to the lions, when Nero feeds them to the lions, they celebrate. Their faces are shining. It's almost like they're happy that they are being crucified or fed to the lions for their faith. And we go, yes, that's true. And is it true that Jesus' followers in the ages to come could die a good death and somehow Jesus was so weak that he couldn't die a good death? I hope you know the names Latimer and Ridley. These two guys were, um, they were burned for heresy outside Oxford in 1555. And as they were basically going to the stake, Latimer said this, which I just think is brilliant. I think it's fantastic. He said this, Be of good cheer, Mr. Ridley. And play the man, for, to, for, this, for we shall this day light such a candle in England as I trust by God's grace shall never be put out. What a way to go. You know that you're about to become a candle. Hey, be of good cheer, Mr. Ridley. We're about to light a candle that will never be put out in this country. I mean, fantastic. Is it that those guys were stiff up a British lip? Come on, let's, we can do this. Good resolve and all of that. And somehow Jesus was weak and feeble, not in the least. Yet this forsaking was a real forsaking. Jesus didn't just feel, he didn't just feel forsaken, he was forsaken. And not only by his disciples, but by the Father himself. You see, it was the Father who delivered Jesus up to Judas, to the Jews, to Pilate, and finally to the cross itself. And now when Jesus cries out to his father, his father closed his ears. The crowd was still jeering. The demons were taunting. And his pain was very real. Yet God in his anger closed his ears to the son. There was no countering voice for Jesus as he hung on that cross. This time, no word came from heaven saying, you're my son in whom I love and I am well pleased. As Jesus was lifted up and glorified, his coronation. No dove came down and rested on him as a sign of the Spirit's presence. No angels came to minister to him and strengthen him. And nobody around the foot of the cross at that moment bowed the knee. And said, thank you. 
Just a few words earlier, a, few, a chapter earlier in um, when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, he's praying, isn't he? You remember that moment. He's praying to his father and he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James and John along with him and he began to, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Going a little further, he fell to the ground and prayed that if it is possible, the hour, this hour, this moment, this impending crucifixion, he says, if it's possible, Father, may this cup pass from me. But then he said, Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And here, when he's on the cross, that was just a a few moments before, a few hours earlier in the day, Jesus is crying out to his father, Abba, Abba. And here on the cross, the cry is El, God most high, holy. A God who is just and true and holy and hates sin and has to deal with sin. Jesus is crying out to his heavenly father. But not with that place of intimacy, but saying, Holy God, Holy Father, not my will, but your will be done to me. Never before had anything come between him and his Father, but now the sin of the world separated them. And in this moment, this this dark moment, moment we could think this is that darkest despair moment we should read it and come out with that as we're reading we should go gosh what is happening here this is God's plan this is the Messiah the Christ this is the one who who came to save to set people free from sin and death and now he is being crucified on a cross we should read it with that emotion we should read it with that reality but also if we know the story of the Bible God's bigger plan we know that back in Genesis that, that we're told that God spoke to Eve and he said, of your offspring will come one who will crush the serpent's head, but the serpent will strike his heel. Jesus is the serpent killer. And then later on in Genesis, we're told this, that Joseph said to his brothers after they sold him into slavery, they put him into a pit. He said, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. And Jesus is saying on the cross to the people around him, to the Romans, to the Jews, to those who hated him, to you and I, he said, you meant this for evil. You hated God, you hated me, and you've crucified me because you hate me, but God has a deeper plan. God has a eucatastrophe going on here that you have no idea about right now. And he says there's a good plan, and so we heard it earlier, didn't we, that for those who are in Christ Jesus and who love him, all things work together for good. And at this moment on the cross, God is demonstrating that in himself upon the cross. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. You see, Jesus had an unquenchable desire to do the will of his Father. And so his surrender was not some weak surrender to an impending doom. He chose his Father's plan. He chose to honor his Father. Listen to some scriptures. I just want to read 
to you. It says, for the joy set before Jesus, he endured the cross, Hebrews 12, scorning the shame. And he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For Jesus, there was joy in doing his father's will. Joy in winning for us salvation that he endured the cross. The reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. John 10. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up. This command I receive from my father. On the cross, Jesus atoned for our sin. He paid the price. He satisfied the wrath of God, the holy righteous anger against sin. We were stuck in sin, people. And Jesus atoned for our sin. Salvation has been achieved for all because Christ died once and for all. Jesus' death was the reason that he came to earth. And because of the cross and Jesus' death upon it, sin and death has been defeated. Can I invite you to stand? I just want to, if the band would like to come back, I just want to read Psalm 22 to us. And maybe, I mean, feel free to sit, feel free to kneel. I'd just love to use this as a moment of meditation on the cross. You see, for Jesus, he knew the scriptures. We're told that. He knew the scriptures from a young age. He had them in him. I just want to ask, do you spend time in the word of God getting the scriptures in you? So that when you are in your moments of darkest despair, I wonder what comes out of your life. Kicking and screaming. Riling against God. Against the world. Against others. Against unfair treatment. Against being misunderstood. Or a dependence and a hunger and a desire for God. I'm not saying it's easy. But Jesus had the scriptures in him that in his darkest moment. In fact, in the darkest of days. Out from him flowed this psalm. He had in his mind, in his suffering, in his forsakenness, this scripture came up. And I don't know about you, but when you walk through life in the ups and downs, how different songs or scriptures just come alive in you. And they kind of bring a sense of, the presence of God and God's faithfulness to you. I don't know if you have that experience. You're just facing a circumstance and then you find a piece of scripture or a song, a worship song comes and it's almost like an anchor. It's, it's God strengthening you, nourishing your soul, saying, I'm for you. I'm with you. Trust in me. Well, listen to what was going on in Jesus' heart as he was on the cross. He said this, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I find no rest. David, King David wrote these words a thousand years before Jesus. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one Israel praises. In you our ancestors put their trust. They trusted you and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were saved. In you they trusted 
and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their head. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him, let him deliver him, since he delights in him. Yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you, even at my mother's breast. From birth I was cast on you. From my mother's womb, you have been my God. Do not be far from me, for trouble is near, and there is no one to help. Many bulls surround me. Strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. Roaring lions that tear their prey open their mouths wide against me. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted within me. My mouth is dried up like a pot's herd, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircle me. They pierce my hands and my feet, and all my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. But you, Lord, do not be far from me. You are my strength. Come quickly to help me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life, from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the mouth of lions. Save me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will declare your name to my people. In the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel. For he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him but has listened to his cry for help. From you comes the theme of my praise. In the great assembly, before those who fear you, I will fulfill my vows. The poor will eat and be satisfied. Amen. Amen. Those who seek the Lord will praise him. Church, seek him. Seek him. Those who don't know Jesus, I want to encourage you, seek him. And he will bring revelation that it will cause a delight and praise and worship in your heart. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations will bow down before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him. Those who cannot keep themselves alive. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. That's you and I. They will proclaim his righteousness. Declaring to a people yet unborn. He has done it. 